I'm excited to be back with you guys today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Andrew, and I am our college and young adult pastor around here, and I love, love, love my job, love getting to be a part of what God is doing here in Austin, Texas. In fact, my wife and I uh, met in school at Baylor University, and that's right, oh, we got some bears in the room, that's what I like to hear, and we moved down here right after graduating to help start Antioch Austin with J.D. and Liz Griffin, and some of you guys may be wondering, why has J.D. stopped preaching? Uh, and the reason is because he is currently in the middle of a six-month sabbatical, um, and God is doing so many good things in and through him and his family, and they are doing incredible, but because of that, he is not up here preaching, so you're stuck with me and a few others for the next few weeks. I hope you can bear with that until we can get him back in the fall, but we've been in the middle of an incredible series reading through the book of Acts, and we're calling it Church in the Wild. Now, what does it look like to live out church in the streets in your work, in your family, not just in this building, but what does it look like to be the church in the wild, studying the book of Acts? And specifically, we've been looking critically at the Word of God and asking the question, where is the Spirit at work in us, and where does the Spirit work through us? That's the narrative that runs through the book of Acts, is that the Spirit of God works in His people and then works through them to do signs and wonders, to, to work out things in the church, to grow his body, to evangelize the story of Christ and save the world, right? He's working in us and through us. And today we're going to journey through the rest of Acts 6 and part of Acts 7 and 8, and it's going to be a good time together. And like some of you guys, I have been enjoying this series not just in this seat on a Sunday, but my life group has been coming together and studying the book of Acts together, and it has been so much fun. Let me tell you, just quick shout out, if you're not in a life group, man, it is such a great place to not just hear a message, but to go deep into the Word of God, to study it with friends, to say, what does this actually mean for our lives if we believe it's true? I'd encourage you to jump into a life group. So I've been studying it in a life group, but then I've also been just reading through the chapters in my time with God. In the mornings, going in and saying, okay, we're reading through Acts 6 and 7. Great. What's this say, Lord? In this last couple weeks, as I've just been reading through Acts 6 and 7, there's a question that's been on my mind as I've looked and seen the Spirit of God in and through a man named Stephen. If you were here last week, you heard us talking a little bit about Stephen. And I, I couldn't help but think about how at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen does something miraculous. He forgives a group of people that are literally attempting to murder him. I mean, that's, let that sink in. That is quite the, uh, quite the thing that needs the Spirit, right? I don't think I would be able to do that every time. But it started getting me thinking about forgiveness. And, and I started to think, we as humans go to extreme lengths to make sure that we don't have to forgive someone. Right? Has anybody else noticed that? That we will go to extreme lengths to try to forget something, to try to move on, to try to avoid people. Now, because I like you guys, I'm going to let you into a little bit of high school Andrew's life. Are you all ready for that? Now, here's my, here's my, uh, my qualifier. I'd like to think I've matured since then. All right? So as you hear this story, see Andrew from a while back, and then, you know, hopefully you get a matured version of me today and tomorrow as we go forward. But I went to a big public high school in Waco, Texas, and, you know, I, for the most part, I had no beef with my teachers, right? I was, I tried to be a, a good student, you know, stick to getting good grades in classes, try not to make enemies of my teachers, because then they give you bad grades, right? You know, all the things you learn in school. And I ran into an issue, my junior level math. 
You see, there was one teacher that everyone encouraged you, if you could avoid her, avoid Miss Goebel. At all costs, avoid Miss Goebel. I don't remember what you learn in junior level math. Maybe some of you out there do, but I've forgotten since then. But I know I will never forget her name. You see, she was notorious. She wouldn't let anyone talk in class. I mean, who does that? right? She was really strict on your understanding. If you didn't do it the right way, even if you got the right answer and you didn't do it her way, eh, wrong. And the rumor was out there that she probably should have retired five or six years before I had her as a teacher. So there's a lot that's stacked up against Miss Goebel. And not only am I unlucky enough to get her for math, I also got assigned to her for my, my junior level homeroom class. So instead of spending 45 minutes with Miss Goebel a day, I got her for two straight hours every day. High school is such a weird thing in life. Have you ever thought about that? You spend two hours a day with someone for a year that you literally never see again? What a weird concept in life. I don't know. But two things you should know about me before I go into this story. The first is that math is not my strongest subject, right? I, I would venture to say it's probably my weakest subject, so just know that as you go into this. The second is, if you don't know this about me already, you probably will come to find out. I like to talk I like to laugh. I like to have fun. I like to, you know, move around. It's hard to pin me down sometimes. So throughout the year, Miss Goebel and I had uh, some butting of heads, we'll call it, um, where there were some misunderstandings. And, you know, for the most part, I did my best to just hold my tongue, right? To just, you know, keep it to myself. And unfortunately, uh, it came to a climax a couple weeks before the end of my junior year where I just couldn't take it anymore. See, one day I'm walking down the hallways to go into my math class, and on the ground, lo and behold, there is a tiny little six-inch rubber snake in the hallway. And, I, you know, being a guy like myself, I'm like, you never know when you could use a rubber snake in the pocket, right? Not thinking of anything, no intent for this rubber snake, but uh, if I've learned anything as a 17-year-old at this point, it's never pass up on a free rubber snake. So it goes in the pocket. Uh, welcome to my brain. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, gosh, I'm still that way, so, you know, whatever. So I go into math class, and for some reason that day, Miss Goval was just grinding my gears, right? She was on my nerves that whole class period, and I, I make it through math class holding my frustrations, and we get into homeroom, which is another hour plus, and throughout the, the hour in, that we're not allowed to talk, even though every other class can talk in homeroom, Miss Goebel would continue to come and help the person next to me and stick her butt in my face for like an hour. And I'm like, it, ooh, I have reached my end. 17-year-old Andrew cannot hold it in anymore. So I start getting frustrated, you know, but I'm like, okay, stay calm, stay calm, stay poised. So I start to scheme a plan. I realize that every time she bends over, the pocket on her jacket she's wearing would fall open. Some of you see where this is going, unfortunately. Some of you think like I do. That's what that means. Some of you are like, I would have done the same thing. So my buddy is sitting next to me, and I, I lean over to him. I'm like, Harrison, bro, I got an idea. You ask Miss Goebel a question. As she leans over to help you, I'm going to show everyone the rubber snake, then I'm going to slip it into her pocket, right? Mastermind over here, the best idea I've ever had. So we call her over. Harrison nails perfectly, pretending that he has a question on geometry or whatever it was. And as she leans over, I get the whole class's attention behind her back. And I'm like, yeah, plastic snake! Leans forward, slide it into her pocket. She doesn't notice at all. 
I mean, I am like on the high of highs, like on top of the world. And on to cherry on top, as she's helping him, she tells a math joke, which my dad, I grew up with a math teacher as a father, so I feel like I can say this, math jokes aren't usually that funny, right? You laugh because you love them or because you want a better grade in math class, but usually math jokes aren't very funny. But the whole class, the joke miraculously times perfectly with me placing the snake in her pocket. So everybody laughs, and she thinks they're laughing at her. And I'm like, yes! This could not have gone better. Revenge has been served to Miss Goble. Now, this was over 11 years ago, and I have to admit, I cannot count the number of times when I have laughed by myself in bed, walking to class, wondering when Miss Goble found the plastic snake. Like, was it in sixth period? Like, she sits down after lunch, and she's like, what? What is this? Was it like she's, like, going home and, like, taking her clothes off, like, hanging her jacket up, and is like, what, a plastic snake? Did her husband find it doing dry cleaning, like, two years late? Like, I literally, uh, including last week, sit there and just laugh, imagining Miss Goble freaking out, sticking her hand in her pocket, finding a plastic snake. Gosh, I hope somebody else can laugh with me at that. But here's the point I'm trying to make. We go to extreme lengths to make sure we don't have to forgive someone. Even someone, something as small as a math teacher that was just good at her job. That for me, it rubbed against me, and I didn't like that. Instead of moving forward, choosing to forgive her. And I think, honestly, all of us will admit that we do this. Hopefully, maybe you don't diffuse with comedy like I do. Hope maybe your thing is, instead of trying to like make people laugh or get, move on with your own, you find yourself overeating when you get home from hanging out with that friend that's offended you time and time again. Maybe that's your fix. That's your go-to instead of forgiveness. Maybe you blow up in anger. That's how you cope. Well, I don't have to deal with it. I'm just going to let them know I'm angry, and then I'm just going to shut down and move on. Maybe you gossip. Maybe your coworker leaves the area and you, can you believe what so-and-so did? This is what I heard about her, right? It's us going and going that we all have different coping mechanisms. We all have different techniques and some are more blatant and some maybe you don't even know exist inside of you. Maybe you've yet to even realize that your heart turns to a certain place to stuff forgiveness. And last week as I was prepping for this message, I rallied some members of our team together, and I just asked them, I was like, guys, as I'm thinking about this message, I'm realizing that we all have reasons that we can come up with to skip through forgiveness, to put away forgiveness, to not walk through it. I was like, hey, what are some of the things you guys walk through? And and I'm going to move out of the way so you guys can see the TV here, but we've got a few reasons that we came up with as a team. And as I read these, I just want you, you can read along, but just think, man, how many of these, even in the last couple months, have you vocalized in your own head? We have a desire for justice or revenge, right? It's got to be justice served. We believe that forgiveness means immediate reconciliation, and I'm not ready for that. We believe forgiveness equals agreement, and I don't agree with them. I don't agree with their point of view, so I'm not forgiving them. Forgiveness means I have to deny the pain that they caused me, and I don't think I'm ready for that. Forgiveness means I'm going to feel all that same pain all over again, and I don't want that. Five more. There you go. Forgiveness comes after repentance, and they haven't repented yet. I've said that one a few times. How can I forgive somebody if they won't change? 
they're not going to make a plan to get different. They don't deserve to be forgiven with what they did to me. And I know they've done it to other people. They don't deserve forgiveness. Well, probably was my fault. I probably asked for it. Nah, it'll just happen again. Right? We can all resonate with at least one of those of things that rise up in us that we're like, ah, I'm just going to set forgiveness aside because these are, these are too real. You see, we've all been wronged. It's true. We've all been wronged that we've had things happen to us. And we're going to dive into Acts 6 and 7 today, and we're going to find a story of a man who was deeply, deeply wronged, unjustly wronged. And I I hope that as we read the word today, as we get into the story of God today, that we'll be able to see someone who, who maybe experienced some similar pains to us and find a way to walk out in forgiveness. If you were here with us last week, Mick Murray jumped in from Antioch, Waco, speaking on the first half of Acts 6 and brought an incredible word about kingdom justice and about the people of God, including Stephen, who were raised up to serve the needy in the church in this incredible message You should go watch it on YouTube. But I'm going to pick up where he left off in Acts 6, verse 8. Again, I'm going to step to the side here so you can try to use the screen. But it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. What a crazy story. Stephen's going along, minding his own business, helping those in need, praying for people that had miraculous needs that he couldn't provide for physically, that he's doing all these crazy, amazing things with God. And then he's accused. He's misunderstood, he's cheated, he's misrepresented. He had every reason to respond in anger, in denial. He could have handled the pain in so many different ways of what was happening to him. But that's when we come to Acts 7. One incredible piece of scripture. Unfortunately, I can't read it all today just because of timing. So I would encourage you this week, go read Acts 7. It is such an incredible chapter in the word of God. But I I do want to summarize some of what happens here. Stephen goes on the longest oration, the longest speech of the gospel narrative in the whole New Testament. So throughout all of the book of Acts and other times, people will stand up and they'll proclaim the gospel. You see Peter do it after Pentecost. You see all throughout Acts. And Stephen here goes through all of chapter 7 explaining the story of God's people and the salvation of Jesus. It's an incredible chapter. He walks through the history of the people of God. He starts with Abraham. He starts talking about the story of Abraham, of how God spoke that he would have 
a family that would be the people of God. And he walks through the story of Abraham. Then he walks through the story of Joseph saying, you know, that there was need and famine and God raised up Joseph and all the complexities of his story. And then he goes into the story of Moses, that he was a man that was as a baby should have died, but was rescued by providence and raised in the king's palace to authority. And then he's exiled and he starts going through the narrative of the story of God through the whole Old Testament. It's an incredible account of the story of God. And then he turns. Stephen turns, and if you've ever read Acts 7, you see at the kind of middle to the end of Acts 7, he, he starts turning, and he turns and starts talking to the religious leaders. He, he stops talking about the history, and he starts speaking about the, the current day. And he starts talking about how you in this room and leaders just like you have persecuted the prophets of God. You've been ones who attack the people that spoke the voice of God to the church. You've been the ones who in this very room just one to two years ago elected to kill Jesus. That maybe some of you sitting in these seats were the ones who condemned him to death on a cross. And then if that's not enough, he ends it by calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in eyes, hearts, and ears. Can you imagine using that insult on your coworker? You stiff-necked, uncircumcised heart person. They'd be like, what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Up until this point, though, they probably agreed with him. They're probably like, yeah, Abraham. And they knew the song from, you know, school. Father Abraham had many sons, and they were our great fathers, right? They're like, thinking about the whole story of God. And I know that's not how the song goes, but I grew up Baptist, so I know that song. Sort of a joke. Uh, wow. So they probably agree with them up until this point. They're probably like, yeah, Abraham, our, our father, our father of our faith, and Joseph, the one who provided, and Moses, the rescuer of the people of God, and God provided in the wilderness. And then they're like, wait a second, what? What are you calling us? And that's where it turns in Acts 7. And you see a very different change. They're no longer in dialogue, but they, they take, it says that they drag Stephen out of the council. And they take him out of this city and they start to stone him to death. I was, I was reading this story this week, and if you've read the Bible before, sometimes you read stuff like that, and then Stephen was stoned to death. And you just move on. Guys, he was stoned. He was put more than likely in a pit so that he could not move, and rocks were thrown at him until he could not endure them any longer, and he died. Let that sink in for a second. I'm not trying to be graphic for graphic's sake. This is the word of God. Stephen was stoned on an unjust testimony. Like on a testimony that was, it literally says the people came together and made up a story, instigated it amongst others, and then tried him on that made up story. And he's dragged out and stoned. Now, I don't know about you, but if I couldn't forgive Miss Goebel for being a good math teacher— I don't know what my response would have been if I were in Stephen's position. I can tell you it wouldn't have been his response. So the question comes, how? You read Acts 7, verse 60, and it says, at the end of Stephen's life, he fell to his knees, and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That line might sound familiar to you. And that's because just a few years earlier, Jesus had said the same thing on the cross. Lord, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. 
Don't hold this against them. And if you're like me, when you slow down enough to not just be a, a speed reader through the Bible and you think about the, the injustice and the unfair hand that Stephen was dealt, you wonder how could he look at the people attempting to kill him, surrounding him, and the words that come out of his mouth be, God, forgive them. God, they don't know what they do. Don't hold this against them. If you don't know the story of Joseph, it's a good one. In fact, it's such a good story. Stephen, in Acts 7, had just spent a great amount of time, more than likely much more time than what was recorded in Acts chapter 7. That's the summary of what he said. More than likely, he could have spoken 20, 30, 40 minutes just on the story of Joseph to the people of God. He knew this story, not just in head knowledge, but deep into his heart. So when he's sitting there on his deathbed, being accused unjustly and having rocks thrown at him, he would have been able to draw on the truth of the story of Joseph. If you don't know this story, it's, it's a really incredible one, but it's full of a lot of need for forgiveness. There's a lot of offense. If you look at your life and you think, oh, I've got a lot of offenses in my life, go read the story of Joseph. It's wild. I, I, I want to summarize some of it before we jump into some of his story. See, Joseph was one of 12 brothers. Eventually there was a 13th, but he comes in later in the story, and they were the great-grandsons of Abraham. So they were the fulfillment of the promise of God to be the people of God, just a couple generations down. And Joseph was the youngest of these brothers, again, until the little brother came. And he, one day, wakes up and he's had a dream with God. God's given him a dream, and in this dream, God speaks to him that you're going to be a mighty leader amongst your brothers. Your brothers will actually bow down to you, and you will be the leader. You will be the one which, if you know anything about hierarchy, the youngest sibling does not get that privilege, right? The younger sibling serves the one above them, serves the one above them, and it's the older brother, the oldest of the family that gets to rule in the father's house when the father goes away. And so this starts to uh, ruffle some feathers, And I would say his delivery was probably not as good as it could have been, right? So his brothers scheme amongst themselves, and they kidnap him. He's out doing his duty for his family. They kidnap him, they drag him away, and they they sell him into slavery. As if that's not enough, his dad, as the favorite son, we can go into that another time, had given him a special set of clothes. He had this special jacket, and they strip him of his jacket, dunk it in goat's blood, and take it back to their father and say, hey dad, your favorite son got eaten by a wild animal. Talk about false testimony. Talk about an unjust story. Fast-forwarding through some major details, he goes into slavery. He's got some wild things that happen. There's a lot more he's got to work out in freedom prayer there, and we're going to skip through that. But through a series of events, another dream comes to him to interpret. A prophetic word from God comes that there is going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. Seven years of the the most abundant crops, the most abundant resources they've ever had. They're going to balloon up as a country through the provision of God. And he, but after that will be seven years of lack. That a famine will come. The whole land will dry up. There will be nothing for the people to have. 
And he goes to the leader and interprets this prophecy from God. And the king, the pharaoh of the time, basically raises him up to be the prime minister. It's the best way to understand it. He becomes second in command over the most powerful country, empire in the whole world at the time. And they start to amass resources. And then lo and behold, just like God said, seven years into the plenty, the famine hits. And there's need, and there's lack, and there's, there's all the surrounding area have needs, and they don't have enough. And Joseph's family, his brothers who had abandoned him, were one of those families that was not prepared for the famine. Where they lived, ran out of food, they ran out of livestock, they, they weren't able to provide for their family. So Jacob, the dad of the brothers, says, hey brothers, I want you to go to Egypt. I hear they have enough. Take some money and go buy what we need for the next few months. So they go out. Again, incredible story. You should read it. Through a long series of events that I'm going to have to fast forward, they end up meeting their brother. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had wronged someone to that extent, and I bump into them 22 years later, and they have the whole armies of the world at their expense, I would be terrified. And they go into the account of them being scared for their lives, and Joseph calms him down and is like, I just am so glad to see you. And he brings his family. It says that 75 family members move into Egypt and they start to enjoy the fruit of his faithfulness. Their family gets a plot of land. They start to multiply. They start to just develop roots here and they have everything that they need. But then the power dynamic changes. Dad dies. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21, part of this story. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Yeah, I would be scared too. So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. There's actually no proof that he did. So smart brothers, quick, write it down. Your father left these instructions. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Mind the place of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, what an incredible story of forgiveness. The wrong done. If anybody had the justification and the means to punish, to return injustice, he could have thrown his brothers in prison any number of times. But no, he responds, saying that he's going to speak kindly to them and provide for them. And I believe that as Stephen is looking into the eyes of his accusers, looking into the eyes of his murderers, that he's drawing on this story. He's drawing on the story of the death of Jesus. And while these may not be our offenses, while they may not be to this severity or this volume, we have all had offenses in our lives. We've been lied about. We've been betrayed by people we trust. We've been misunderstood. We've been falsely accused. 
We've been left by family to fend for ourselves, right? Our stories, we've been hurt and pained by people. And I love that the Word of God is more than just a narrative. It's not just a story to be read, but Psalm 119 says it's a guide to our feet, a lamp to our path. It's for us to follow. It's for us to have instruction in times of need. And as we look to the Word, we are given what we need to walk out in the way that God has given us. And I believe that Stephen was able to do that as he drew on truths from Joseph's story. And as you read the story of Joseph, and as you follow it with the story of Stephen, I see two clear truths that we can ourselves walk in when the pain of unforgiveness comes right up against our face. And the first is this, they both get heaven's perspective. I love this. We see Joseph in verse 18 and 19. Look, and he says, look, 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 look. What you meant for harm, God had something so good in it. God had a purpose. You meant to harm me. You did. But the perspective of God is so much better than mine. God meant something good out of this. In Acts 7, Stephen is described as saying loudly enough for all to hear. This wasn't just a private moment with God where he's under his breath, Lord, oh, forgive them. He says, I'm saying it loudly for all to hear. And it says that he has an open vision of heaven. You can't get much more of heaven's perspective than that. He has an open vision of heaven, seeing Jesus standing to the right of God. What a glorious picture he was about to enter into. And for you and me, I know that this can be hard to seek heaven's perspective. You get wrapped up in your emotions. You get wrapped up in the justifications and the misunderstandings and the dynamics of people. And I'm going to have to see them again. And I'm going to have to do this. And I'm going, you know, the next time we go home for Christmas, mom's still going to be there. And I've got to go back to work every week. And, right, you get wrapped up that it's hard to get heaven's perspective. But guys, we need it. If we're going to walk in forgiveness, we've got to see things through the lens of how God sees life. For Joseph, it took 20 plus years of reflecting on the good that God had brought out to say, Lord, I see you had good. For Stephen, it was an open vision of heaven. It was a moment where he looks up and he sees Jesus, the one who had just been crucified. The one who had just, just recently been crucified. And he says, Jesus, okay, that, I see you. For us, it takes work to get before God and to seek him. Maybe for you, it looks like an angry prayer time. If you were with us at the beginning of the, of the summer, end of the spring, you heard Carl Gully preaching through the Pause series. And there's something he, he said in that series that struck me so deeply. As he said, God does not need your filtered prayers. He's a big boy. That was what Carl said. And I quote Carl Gully. He said, we don't need to be like, oh God, like I'm so mad, but I know you're God and Good, and you'll figure it out. No, God needs to hear us cry out, Lord, that was unjust. I don't understand that. Why did you allow that to happen to me? Why did my family have to go through that? God can take it. So maybe for you, getting heaven's perspective starts with some angry prayers that you go before God, saying, God, I'm, I don't understand this one. For me, it looks like journaling until I run out of things to say. 
saying, God, my, my head is so full of, of things that happened and accusations and confusions and frustrations. I've got to get them all out in pen, and then I can, okay, Lord, it's all on the page. What do you have to say? Sometimes that helps me get heaven's perspective. It looks like reading this word, reading this book, and letting it be a light unto us. You see, so often I think we read this book trying to find context for how we can apply it to our lives. Oh, I'm struggling with unforgiveness. I should go find the word unforgiveness. I do this all the time. No, this book was given to us to instruct how we live, not to to go back to and try to jigsaw it into our lives. This is a manual for us to live by. And as we read it and we read about Joseph, forgiving after kidnapping, accusation, imprisonment. To be able to walk in forgiveness, it becomes a guide towards heaven's perspective, right? So we get to read his word. Maybe it's prayer with a friend saying, look, I, I can't wrap my mind around this. I know God's got something in it. Can you pray with me? Can you walk with me? Maybe it's finding someone who's lived through the season of life that you're in. My wife and I talk about our journey a lot, but we walked through two years of infertility and having people that had walked through that journey before be able to speak into our lives became so important to us. Maybe for you it's saying, hey, I can't see the perspective now, but you've lived this. Can you remind me of who God is? We've got to do the work to get heaven's perspective on an issue if we're going to cross that hurdle of unforgiveness. The second thing that I see in both stories, and this one to me is actually a little harder, it says that they treated those who wronged them differently. Go look at this story. Joseph, it says that he provided for his family. Not only did he forgive them, he provided for them. He made space for them. He restored relationship with them. He gave to them. And then it said that he spoke kindly to them. It's one thing to just forgive somebody, to get God's perspective and forgive them, but then he turned and he spoke tenderly to them. He didn't gossip about his brothers. He wasn't walking around the pharaohs saying, hey, hey, did you hear what my brothers did 20 years ago? No, he spoke kindly to them. And we see Stephen do the same. He yells out in a loud voice for all to hear, God, don't hold this against them because I don't. He changes his tone about his accusers. And guys, the second thing is we get to treat those who wronged us differently. And I know this is a minority opinion. I know even in this room, some of us probably are like, ah, I don't know about that one. Because I know for me, getting heaven's perspective is a lot easier. I get to go spend time with God. I get to maybe feel better after it. I get understanding about a confusing idea, right? I can leave, whew, I feel better about that. But then to go to that same place of pain and treat that person differently, that takes another level of commitment for me. But isn't that what it means to be a disciple? To live differently than the world around us? Jesus said that we were meant to be a city on a hill, a light to a dark world. And if we act like the world, our light will no longer shine. Our salt, as he says, will no longer be salty. And what is used for, for old salt is to be trampled on the ground. Guys, as disciples, we are called to do hard things to look like our teacher, to become sanctified into his image. And I know, I know 
This is so hard. And here's the deal. I don't come up here and speak blatant statements like that without understanding that there are some things that are extremely hard, maybe currently going on in your life. Things that can feel completely unforgivable. The person who touched you inappropriately, the father who belittled you rather than being your biggest supporter your whole life, the son or daughter who spurned your relationship and investment to run around with the world. There are real things that can feel irreparable to us. And maybe you can relate to that tension that you're like, I want forgiveness, but I'm not ready to repair that relationship. I'm not ready to face them again. And to that, I want to say this. I, I had this definition of forgiveness shared with me from one of our team members as I was preparing for this message, and it comes from the Center for Relational Care, and it defines forgiveness this way. It says, forgiveness is the choice of letting go of our anger about an offense and choosing not to hold an offense against someone. And the thing about forgiveness is that it only takes one person going to God and releasing the other of judgment. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is me going to God and saying, God, I release judgment over this person to you. It's not in my control to judge them. But reconciliation is different. Reconciliation is the process of two willing parties choosing to acknowledge the wrong that was done with the desire to work toward repaired relationship following an offense. You see, all reconciliation requires forgiveness first. Here you go. Yeah, y'all take a picture. I'll get out of the way. All reconciliation requires forgiveness. It requires us going to God first and then coming together. But not all forgiveness will end in reconciliation. Even looking at this story, Stephen didn't get reconciliation with his accusers, but he reached forgiveness. And I want to say this. It may be really hard to forgive someone. The offenses that you've walked through, the pains that you've had. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew it was going to be hard. In fact, in Matthew 18, he's teaching his disciples, and he says that some of you must forgive 70 times 7. You'll have to forgive a brother 70 times 7. Now, I did get better at math since 11th grade. That's 490. I don't think there's anything magical about that number, other than Jesus is saying this. It's going to take time. There's going to be offenses that come that are really hard to walk through. There's going to be things that you face that are going to be very hard to cross the hurdle of unforgiveness. And we can get caught in those reasons of what if it happens again, of I'm not ready to see them again, or they need punishment, or whatever. And the invitation is the same. We get to get heaven's perspective. I love this verse in Ephesians 4. It says this in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And here's what I want to say. As believers, even if we don't understand it, we get to act from the motivation that we have been forgiven of so much. God has forgiven me of my most hidden sins, my most dark moments, my weakest seasons, and if he can do that, then I can forgive the person wronged me. 
So the question comes, well, what happens if we do this? If we actually can walk out and getting heaven's perspective and treating people differently? I love it. Joseph saw his whole family, generations of family provided for. And Stephen, he never saw the fruit of his forgiveness, but it's a wild story. If you read in that story in Acts 7 verse 58 and Acts 8 verse 1, it's described that there was a man named Saul who was watching the execution of Stephen. Some describe him as overseeing the execution. He was there, present, and he would have heard Stephen yell out, don't hold this against them, God. He goes on to describe that he would go on and start a rampage against the church of Christ, tearing down the church and belittling people and executing and imprisoning people. But we see just two chapters later, believed to be about two years later, Saul encounters Jesus on the road. He's radically transformed. I'm not going to spoil the story, but you can read it ahead of time if you want. Acts chapter 9. You see, we may never see the fruit of our forgiveness. Like Stephen, we may, we, we may never know what it does for the others on the back end. Yeah, we may feel lighter, and I'm, I'm so thankful that God lets forgiveness lighten our load. But I believe that our forgiveness can serve as a catalyst for others' encounter as well. I believe just like Stephen's forgiveness, he may not have interacted with Saul right there, but Saul was impacted, if not then, when he met Jesus by Stephen's forgiveness. And today we have the opportunity to take our offenses to God, to seek heaven's perspective, and to treat people differently, just like we're given in the Word. And we're going to have a time of ministry together our band's going to come out, and we're going to take some time to worship again. And here's what I, I want to encourage you guys. A word like this can hit you, and you can sit and think about it, and then you can go out to lunch, and nothing changes. Right? Go get tacos. We're in Austin. And nothing changes. Just the same. But I believe that for some of us in this room, Jesus has a moment that he wants to meet with us. Maybe for you in this room, as you're hearing this message, your struggle isn't trying to forgive someone else. You're like, I can't even understand why I would be forgiven. And in your mind, you're thinking of what you've done to your family. You're thinking of what you've done to your loved one. You're thinking of, of what you did in high school or the thing that you did that you know that, that shouldn't be forgiven. And you struggle with the concept of Jesus coming to forgive you in the midst of your sin. And I want to say, guys, until you can understand that, forgiveness is going to be really hard. And today, my encouragement for you is to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you forgive a sinner like me? You can list out your wrongs. You can tell him what you've done. Because Jesus knows it already. He knows your wicked thoughts, your selfish ambition, the things you've done to people. And he paid the price for it. He paid a painful price of death, undeserved, marked by forgiveness, just like Stephen's. And today, for you, maybe today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you look and you say, Jesus, would you forgive a sinner like me? And if that's you, I just want to encourage you, when, the, when we start worshiping, start talking to God. 
there's no magical words about asking for forgiveness, but it's about being open and believing that he has forgiven you. That's the gospel. And for others of us, you know that there's forgiveness that you need to start the work in your own heart. You know that you need to forgive somebody. You need to work something out. And you say, yeah, but, but how do I even start? How do I even start that? Today we're going to have a scripted prayer on the screen as we start our ministry time together. And we're actually going to leave this up during the rest of ministry time. We're not going to put the lyrics to the worship song on. And as we worship, my encouragement to you is as we've been going and the things have come to your mind of, oh, I know that I'm holding bitterness towards my mom. I know this person, I'm, I haven't forgiven them. I've held it against them. I know I've been waiting for justice before forgiveness. As those things have come to your mind, we're going to have a scripted prayer. And there's nothing magical about it other than giving language to us to help understand how to walk in forgiveness. And it says this, Dear Lord, you're moved with compassion for my pain. Thank you for forgiving all my sins. You don't hold anything against me because Jesus has paid for all my sins on the cross. In light of this, I choose to forgive with the person's name. Four, and I want you to list out the offenses. This may take you the whole song. It may take you more than today. You may need to take a picture of this and take it home and in your time with God, pray this over and over. I know you're the only one who has the right to hold anything against anyone. I don't. This person is accountable to you. Please change him or her as you see fit. I choose to no longer hold a grudge. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're just going to sit in that prayer as many times as you need to. Maybe today is the first time you've chosen to forgive that person that you have held a reason for unforgiveness for years. Maybe like Jesus said, this is time 251. And you just gotta do it again. Lord, ah, I've been judgmental in my heart again. Please forgive me. Forgive them. I forgive them, Lord. For others of you, it may be too painful to even say that prayer. Even knowing some of your stories, I know some of you in this room have things that are just unbearable. And you can't even get the words out. And maybe you just need someone to put an arm around you and pray with you and pray for you. Lord, give us the strength to see you. And we're going to have some prayer teams down here at the front. If you're a life group leader, one of our staff members, you can go ahead and make your way down. Why don't we all stand up together? And if that's you and you're like, I just need... I need someone to put an arm around me and just pray for me. I don't have words. I need to confess the things that I'm feeling, the, the pain that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling with. Then I want to encourage you, come find somebody to pray with you. And we're going to create space. But just for the next few minutes, let's respond and let God heal us of our unforgiveness.